Yo, what's going on, everybody? This is Austin coming at you with another episode of the Coffee Break Hems podcast. Today on the podcast, I am going to be talking about a little bit of mechanical ventilation stuff. Seems to be the uh, trend more and more these days that I continue talking about ventilator management, but um, I find that it is probably the single subject that people are A, the most interested in hearing about, and B, it is the single subject where people experience the most amount of challenges in terms of being able to treat a patient effectively and not get lost in the weeds. And so today I'm going to take a look at a case um, and then I'm going to talk about maybe um, an alternative approach to this patient that, um, I mean, may have helped with their comfort, may have helped with uh, taking some of the cognitive load off of um, off of the crew themselves. So um, certain aspects of this call have been changed just so that way I don't run into, you know, encounter any like HIPAA or anything like that. Um, but the gist of the call is, um, is going to be uh, be as it was, essentially. So the case begins with a 75-year-old male. He has a COPD, hypertension, and non-insulin-dependent diabetes history. He was brought into a small emergency department with a three-day history of shortness of breath. Um, when he arrived at the emergency department, they placed him on a non-rebreather. His oxygen saturations were poor. Um, they I tested him for COVID. He was negative. He was doing worse and worse on the non-rebreather. And so they eventually placed this patient on BiPAP. They drew some labs. Um, and then when the labs came back, they looked a little bit like this. So we'll start with his gas first. They did do a gas on him. Um, he did not have a acidosis um, on his pH, he had a pH of 7.42, um, so uh, normal range, but he had a CO2 of 63 um, and a bicarb of 40. And so when we see a CO2 of 63, then that obviously lets us know that this patient has a respiratory acidosis um, because their CO2 is so high, um, but this body has compensated 100% for that um, and elevated the level of bicarbonate in the body to 40. Um, and so that's a very, very important finding for this patient that we'll come back to. When the hospital drew this gas, they viewed this patient to be in a severe respiratory failure because the CO2 was so high. And so they made the decision to intubate this patient. Um, before intubating, um, we'll talk about, um, talk about a few more of the labs here. So in terms of um, some pertinent labs that I always like to look at on a patient. Um, obviously, there's CBC. Um, so this patient has a white count of about 15, um, has an H&H &H of 15 and 55, and has a platelet count of 245. And so with a white cell count of um, 15, we know that this patient has some infection going on. Um, I'm going to take a look at his lungs and his bladder and kidneys um, first to determine if the infection is probably coming from there. And so we'll look at the kidneys in just one second. Um, H and H of 15 and 55. Um, when I see a hematocrit that is that high, a hematocrit of 55, um, generally I'm going to immediately 
look at the sodium and then I'm going to look at the BUN. Um, and if all three of those are elevated, then that patient has um, a volume depletion problem, uh, has, a, has a hypovolemia problem. Um, and so platelets of 245, that's totally normal. So the next thing that I um, look at, and it's probably honestly even more so than the ABG, looking at a chemistry is probably the most important thing to look at when you are doing an interfacility transport on a patient because our chemistry tells us a bunch. I mean, our chemistry will tell us what the renal function is, obviously tell us what the sugar is. It'll tell us if the patient has an acidosis or not. You don't need to look at an ABG to see if somebody's acidotic. You can just look at the chemistry. Um, and so this patient has uh, a sodium of 148. Um, so that is also elevated. Uh, has a chloride of 102 which is totally 100% normal, um, has a BUN of 15, so a little, um, a little on the higher side, not crazy, but a little on the higher side. So because the BUN, the sodium, and the hematocrit are all elevated, then we know that this patient has a volume problem. Um, has a uh, potassium of 4.6, a CO2 of 34, and a creatinine of 1.3. So um, kind of some borderline renal failure patient also has a, a, a glucose of 155, which is kind of to be expected if a patient is in a hypermetabolic state due to some sort of infection or something pretty typical to see an elevated blood sugar. And this patient has a history of non-insulin dependent diabetes, so that makes sense as well. So the reason that I was saying it's so important to look at the chemistry is because of this, right? So one of the, the predominant determiners, I guess, of if a patient is acidotic or not is the strong ion difference, which is that difference between the sodium and the chloride. And so with this particular patient, it has a, you know, has a sodium of 147 and a chloride of 102. And so the difference between those two is actually 45. Um, and it should be approximately 38 um, should be the difference between the two. Um, and so because it is more than 38, this patient actually has a measure of um, metabolic alkalosis. If your strong ion difference is less than 38, so let's say that sodium had been uh, you know, 135 and the chloride had been 110, uh, meaning that the difference between the sodium and the chloride is only um, 15 in that respect, that's less than 38. So that means that that patient has some sort of metabolic acidosis. We would commonly refer to that as a hyperchloremic acidosis, and it's most commonly caused by... Um, High, you know, a, a high high amount of sodium, or excuse me, a saline infusion in our patients, but it can be caused by some other things as well. But this patient does not have that. The other important number to look at in terms of acid base um, on the chemistry is looking at the total CO2, right? So the total CO2 of 34 milliequivalents per liter tells me this patient has a metabolic alkalosis because um, the total CO2 that we find on the chemistry um, is really the level of bicarbonate inside of the body. And so that's why the normal values of CO2 on a chemistry are 22 to 26, because that is what the normal level of bicarbonate is in the body of that 22 to 26, um, with the perfect being 24. So we see that actually on the chemistry, the level of bicarb in the body or that total CO2 is 34. So it's 10 above normal. And I'll come back to that 10 above normal here in just a few minutes.
We also see on the liver panel, normal liver function, AST, ALT are in the 20s. Um, albumin is up at 6.5. And remember, albumin is a concentration of grams per deciliter of fluid. And so we should see an albumin of about four. When we see an elevated albumin like that, it can tend toward um, some hypovolemia as well, um, which would make sense for this patient. All right, so we said that if the patient has an elevated white count, we need to kind of look um, uh, we need to look at the lungs, we need to look at the kidneys to see uh, what the source of infection is, if there is a source of infection, and then we also need to be looking at the lactate to see if this patient has sepsis as well. The lactate is only like 0.8, so this patient does not have a, a lactate acidosis. Um, and when we look at the urine, we see that there is um, both bacteria, nitrites, and proteins in the urine, and so this patient has a urinary tract infection. But in the absence of an elevated lactate, fortunately, this patient is not septic at the same time. All right, so back to our patient. Our patient is intubated relatively easily by the hospital, and they are situated for transport. And um, the hospital thought that this patient was in a profound respiratory failure. And so their goal with the ventilator on this patient was to have a safe volume for this patient, wanted to get their oxygen saturation up above 93%, and then they wanted to have a, um, a eucapnia. They wanted to assure that this patient breathed off some of that CO2 that he had been accumulating prior to the intubation. And so when they placed this patient on the ventilator, um, they had a tidal volume of 480. Um, he, had an, he has an ideal body weight of 60 kilos. So they put a tidal volume of 480, which is great. Um, they did an inspiratory time of 0.9 seconds. I think that they probably started on 0.9 because they had determined that this patient was a COPD patient. And so they wanted to give the patient as, I guess, a long an I to E ratio as they possibly could. Um, we'll talk a little bit about why that may or may not be a good idea. Um, and then they set the respiratory rate to 22 on the ventilator. The patient also had a PEEP of 5 and an FiO2 of 100%. Patient's vital signs were pretty good. Um, and tidal CO2 was in the low 40s, upper 30s. Um, everything was looking kind of nice, except the patient just like refused to be sedated. It was on a very high dose of propofol, was on a very high dose of fentanyl, um, was very, very uncomfortable. The hospital actually was looking to put this patient on a um, vecuronium drip in order to paralyze this patient because they were so profoundly difficult to sedate, despite the fact that this patient did not take really any narcotics um, or any other drugs at home that would lead them to be um, very difficult to sedate, which I guess brings us to kind of the first place that we really need to think about for this patient in terms of like, what are the, you know, what are the four things that are going to make you very difficult to sedate um, as an intubated patient. First and foremost, if you're in a lot of pain, you're going to be very difficult to sedate. If you are significantly um, hypoxic, you are going to be difficult to sedate. If your lungs do not like accommodating the volume that you're putting into them, they're going to be you're going to be very difficult to sedate. And then finally, if your CO2 is not where your body wants the CO2 to be, you're going to be very difficult to sedate. And so remember that hyper 
um, carbia, so hypoventilation, causing a high level of CO2, that can cause patients to feel like they're drowning and to become very um, difficult to sedate. However, on the flip side of that coin too, a low CO2 level from hyperventilation can make patients feel super uncomfortable as well. And so we do have to consider that CO2 can be too high or too low for our patients respectively, and we need to um, be able to identify those. All right. So throughout the remainder of this call and um, after our crew got there, um, made the patient a lot more comfortable on the ventilator, but they were still having a lot of problems with ventilator dyssynchrony on this particular patient um, and ended up realizing that this patient was significantly obstructing, had a very high auto peep of 12, um, and through several adjustments on the ventilator, um, uh, we're trying to get him pointed in the right direction. Unfortunately, this is where, you know, ventilator management can be a very difficult, um, uh, a very difficult animal to tame because there's so many directions that we can go and there's so many, um, so many pathways that we can kind of walk down that we can end up getting a little bit um, backwards. And so what I would like to do is start from the very beginning and start on the correct path, um, and that is going to hopefully allow us to make proper decisions or, or correct decisions um, down the kind of the ventilator pathway. So first and foremost, whenever we are doing any type of mechanical ventilation, we have to understand what our goal is for a particular patient, right? And so all of our patients are essentially starting off on the protective lung strategy, which is delivering a safe amount of volume delivering a livable and adequate amount of oxygen to the tissues and um, maintaining a eucapnea, maintaining a normal CO2. And we only deviate from that if the patient needs us to deviate from that. And so is there something on this patient that would very clearly let us know that the patient wants us to deviate from that. And I would say absolutely there is information here available to us that would make me not want to target a euvolemic CO2, or excuse me, a eucapnic CO2 on this patient. And it all starts with that ABG. So we know that this patient has a normal CO2, or excuse me, a normal pH, it has a pH of 7.42 on this patient. What that tells me is that whatever conditions this patient has, whatever respiratory acidosis they have, that their kidneys have been tolerating that for such a long period of time that they've been able to 100% compensate for that. And we only see complete full compensation with chronic conditions, right? It can't happen in an acute setting. And so if you look at this patient's CO2 of 63, you're like, oh my God, like that CO2 is super high. That can't be normal for this patient. But let's look at the level of bicarb in this body. And what did we say that the bicarb level was, right? The bicarb is what that, that total CO2 that we get off the chemistry. And so the total CO2, i.e. the bicarb, is 34, which means that um, it's approximately 10 above normal. Um, we know that normal bicarb is 22 to 26, but if we just average it out to the, um, to the right dead center, then we would say a normal bicarb is approximately 24. And this patient's currently sitting at 34. So what that means is that the kidneys have intentionally reuptaken 10 milliequivalents per liter um, or millimoles per liter of bicarbonate 
into the blood to buffer the additional amount of CO2 that is present inside of that body. And we know that for every 10 increase in the CO2 above normal, for chronic conditions, we're going to see the bicarb come up by about four. So if the CO2 was 50, um, which is 10 above normal, we would then see the bicarb typically come up about four above normal. So we'd see the bicarb come up to 28 or 30. In this particular patient, we see that the bicarbonate is 10 above normal. And so if you do that same math and you're like, okay, so if the bicarb goes up by four, that means the CO2 is probably up by approximately 10. And so if we see that the bicarb is up by 10, um, then the CO2 should be probably about 25 above normal. And that would land the CO2 right at about 65. And we see on that ABG that the CO2 is 63. So all the numbers are matching, right? And when we see matchy-matchy, um, then that means that the patient is doing what the patient wants to do. And what that means is that this CO2 level of 60 is probably normal for this patient, and it is probably what this patient lives at. And yes, this patient came in and was um, was tired and was having exacerbation of their COPD and required um, BiPAP, um, but was that level of CO2, was that 63 of on their CO2 prior to intubation, um, was that a kind of normal amount of CO2 for this patient? Probably. And so what that tells me is that I am probably not going to target a CO2 of 40 for this patient. Not necessarily going to target an entitled CO2 of 63 but, or 65, but what it tells me is that this patient lives and tolerates a much higher level of CO2 than we do. And so I don't need to be worried about maintaining eucapnea. And in fact, in a patient who chronically lives with a CO2 of 65, if I blow them down to a CO2 of 40, they're probably going to feel like they're hyperventilating, which is going to make them tingly and numb and lightheaded and probably make them feel like garbage um, and make them very difficult to sedate. So just that knowledge alone, before we even get this patient hooked up to the ventilator, should hopefully start to set us in the right direction and take away the priming that the hospital gives us, right? The, the importance of priming is like crazy, right? I mean, anybody who works in EMS knows that if you walk into a hospital room and you start kind of talking about the, diag the differential diagnoses that you've come up with and you're like, yeah, this is what I'm treating, the hospital will immediately start down that pathway, right? And it may take them, if you're completely wrong, it still may take them 20, 30, 40, 60 minutes to determine that you were actually completely full of shit and didn't have the diagnosis. And so, um, uh, but they're going to treat based off of, you know, your priming, I guess, for quite some period of time, generally speaking, especially in a flight position. And hospitals are no different, right? If a crew comes to transport a patient, um, the crew is assuming that the hospital knows what's going on. And so the priming that uh, this crew received when they got to the sending facility and saw that the respiratory rate was up at 22, the eye time was at 0.9 seconds, um, they naturally, um, their natural instinct is to probably copy those settings over. And what I would argue is that um, don't.
do that. <laughs> Don't just copy settings over from an RT or, or copy settings over from the sending facility and just put them into your ventilator without a reason, right? We want to talk about these things and have a reason. And generally speaking, if you're going to a critical access hospital um, who's doing a transfer to an ICU, um, maybe they are not experienced with these patients to begin with. And, um, and you know, that's the reason for the transfer in the first place. And so um, we shouldn't just take all of these settings for granted. So for this patient, um, we know that we had that respiratory rate of 22. We had that eye time of 0.9 seconds. Um, and initial peak inspiratory pressures for this patient were 85. 85 centimeters of water pressure on the sending ventilator. When our crew got there, made some initial, um, a few little um, changes, it looks like, um, uh, mechanically made a few changes to the tube itself. Um, uh, there was um, some like mucus in the tube and got that crap out of there um, and maybe reduced the tidal volume just a little bit. And so, um, you know, 30 minutes later when the peak inspiratory pressures were rechecked, um, patient had a PIP of 55. And when an inspiratory hold was performed, had a plateau pressure of 20. So what does that tell us? So what that tells us is that the patient has the coffee straw effect, right? So it has the super high peak inspiratory pressure, but a normal plateau pressure. So what that means is that as the ventilator is blowing air in through the inspiratory limb of the vent um, and the pressure, the air is hitting that ET tube, that pressure is being measured right there. And so what that 55, that peak inspiratory pressure is, is the pressure in the ET tube and maybe the pressure in the trachea a little bit. Um, and so the peak inspiratory pressure is not really, we don't really care necessarily about them. They're not injurious or anything like that if they're in the 50s. But Throughout the course of the circuit, meaning the tube and your trachea and your large and smaller airways and your bronchioles, you have lost a ton of pressure because 55 centimeters of water pressure is hitting you in the ET tube, but only 20 centimeters of water pressure are actually being exposed to your alveoli. And so what we refer to that when you have a large difference between your pips and your plateau pressure, when you have a large difference between your peak inspiratory pressure and your alveolar pressure, um, we have something called high airway resistance or RA, the R-A-W, which is resistance of the airway. So you have a high airway resistance. Now, what are some things that can cause high airway resistance? Well, the first and foremost is going to be a short eye time. And we see that the hospital had started this patient on an eye time of 0.9 seconds in the name of trying to give this patient a longer eye to E ratio. Was that the right thing to do? Probably not. Is it the end of the world? Probably not. What's another thing that can cause high airway resistance? Well, a small ET tube can do that. If you put a 5.0 in an adult male, you're gonna have a lot of high airway resistance. Um, not the case with this person. This is an elderly male, had like an 8.0 ET tube that was 24 centimeters at the teeth, and um, 
and is positioned appropriately two centimeters above the carina. And so the tube is an adequate size. The next thing that can cause high airway resistance is a significant amount of mucus in the ET tube, basically the coffee straw effect or the stricturing effect of like um, of a hose, right? So put a little mucus plug in that hose and it's going to stricture it down enough to where the pips are going to start to climb. Um, the crew had done a really good job in suction this patient out and that alone dropped the pips from 80 down to 55. So we've taken care of that aspect of it. And then the fourth and final thing that causes markedly high airway resistance, like this humongous difference that we have here, is bronchoconstriction. And so if this patient has a history of COPD, takes a combi van at home, takes steroids at home, um, probably like not a bad um, place to start. And so um, I probably on this patient would very quickly have done an inline nib on this um, uh, on this dude and seen what that had done for him. Um, obviously, I would be looking at his entitled CO2 waveform as well to see if he had any measure of obvious bronchospastic um, obstruction on or shark finning on the entitled CO2 waveform. But really, um, despite what I I interpreted on the CO2, um, just the clinical picture that I'm getting from this patient, it would probably make me pull the trigger on doing an inline neb on this patient, um, maybe even possibly doing some other subcutaneous like chemical intervention. This patient also takes terbutaline at home too because their COPD is so bad. All right, so we're starting off that pathway in order to hopefully alleviate some of the bronchospasm, which will reduce the level of airway resistance. But airway resistance in and of itself is not necessarily something that I'm going to try to treat unless it, the airway resistance is so bad that I can't get the tidal volume into the body. If I can't get the tidal volume in, like I'm trying to put in 460 or 480, and I'm hitting such high um, pips that my safety valve, my, my, my pressure relief valve is, is activating every time and dumping the pressure so I'm not actually getting my tidal volume in, then I'm going to start treating that airway resistance. But Outside of that, as long as my volume, as long as my tidal volume is still going in and coming out, um, then I'm then I'm not going to do any ventilator witchcraft in order to um, in order to fix the airway resistance. Um, I might do a podcast on on that actually, but um, uh, Eric Bauer actually does a pretty darn good job uh, explaining super high airway resistance and the one to one. Um, strategy for um, those patients uh, on the Flight Bridge Ed podcast. Did it a couple years ago. You guys can look it up. So for this patient, I'm not super concerned necessarily about the airway resistance in terms of ventilator stuff, but I definitely need to make sure that this patient is getting the air out that I'm asking him to put in. And that's where we kind of need to like start at the start, right? Start at the beginning and not just get primed into putting in exactly what, um, you know, what the hospital did and we need to start off on our stuff. And so for me, I think that it is reasonable if they had a respiratory rate of 22, um, it is reasonable for me to probably start at a little lower than that, maybe 16 to 18 on my respiratory rate. I'm still fine keeping eight cc's per kilo on the um, on the tidal volume, um, I would, because those pips are so insanely high, um, I 
would probably have brought that eye time back to about one second. That would have probably just immediately made my pips start to normalize anyway. Because um, remember, a short eye time is one of the most common things that will cause really high airway resistance. Um, uh, you know, a peep of five FIO2 of 100% for the COPD ear is probably appropriate. I don't want to necessarily stack, uh, have any breath stacking because of a high peep that he's having a hard time breathing against. And we all know that the first thing that we're going to do when we hook somebody up to the ventilator is we're going to run an inspiratory hold and check a plateau pressure to make sure that our tidal volumes are safe. And we've already done that. Our plateau pressure is 20. But the second thing that we need to do every single time on these patients before we get sucked into doing like, you know, into chasing CO2s, into chasing um, SBO2s, um, is we need to make sure that the protective lung strategy is appropriate for our patient, right? And so we've checked an eye hold. What that does is it tells us if our lungs are safe. And now we're going to check an e-hold. And an e-hold allows us to see if our strategy is appropriate. And when we check an e-hold on this patient, um, in the first five minutes of being there, instead of you know waiting for an hour or two to finally check an e-hold, if we check an e-hold in the first five minutes that we get to our patient's bedside and see that the e-hold um, reveals that the patient has an auto peep of 12, that immediately shifts our gears to saying, okay, this is the obstructive lung strategy. And now my desire to have a normal CO2 is no longer on the table. The only thing that I wanna do with the obstructive lung strategy is I want to maintain a safe volume coming in and out of the lungs. I want to maintain an oxygen saturation greater than 93%. And I want them to exhale all the air that I'm putting into their body. And I want to assure that they are not <laughs> um, taking spontaneous breaths. And I want to assure that they are not breath stacking and continuously auto peeping for the remainder of the call because that's going to cause them to eventually become hypoxic it's going to cause them to become hypotensive it's going to be impossible to sedate them um, and it is something that's very easy to get behind the eight ball on and make it really difficult to um, treat this patient all right so We've already established kind of what my starting settings are on this patient. I'm going to start off on a respiratory rate, probably around 18 on this patient. Um, I, I would have no problem starting off on a respiratory rate of 16, which would be kind of the normal starting respiratory rate, but dropping from a respiratory rate of 22 down to 18 is already substantial enough um, to give us kind of a lot of bang for our buck in terms of auto peeping. And so I'm going to see if 18 will do it. Um, FiO2 of 100% is totally or is totally fine for this patient. My tidal volume of 480 is great. Um, uh, eye time of one second is fine. Peep of six is fine, or peep of five, whatever you want to do. Um, and then in terms of the mode of ventilation, now, uh, I mean, we're in a volume mode of ventilation um, as far as our breath type, but are we in assist control or SIMV on this patient? And I guess that I would argue that if the patient is paralyzed um, and well sedated, then assist control volume is totally fine. I think that if this patient is not paralyzed and super well sedated, that maybe an SIMV volume would be... Um, would be a good mode to be in. Um, and you just drop your pressure support essentially down to almost nothing. So that way, if they do take a spontaneous breath, they're not really getting any meaningful volume in and out of their body. But I'm sure other people would argue that that's a mean thing to do. So, um, you know, don't, uh, don't set that in stone. <laughs> that's that's just just one person's opinion. Um, all right. So uh, let's say that this patient is not um, 
not paralyzed, just well sedated at this point. We've given uh, two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, followed it up by a drip, by a ketamine drip as well. Um, and uh, as the patient begins to look like they're maybe a little bit agitated, um, we've increased the ketamine drip up to four milligrams per kilogram per hour and then have been supplementally giving a little bit of Versed um, for any um, additional sedation needs that this patient has. So I've got this guy then an SIMV volume. Um, uh, already stated the settings here. I've probably dropped my pressure support, um, you know, down to like zero uh, or one or two, just if that makes you feel wonderful that they can get a little bit of volume if they do take a random spontaneous breath. But one other thing that I'm going to be doing on this ventilator is I'm going to be probably switching over to a pressure trigger on the ventilator, either that or, or greatly increasing the flow trigger, probably up to four or five um, liters per minute on my on my flow trigger so that way it becomes very difficult to accidentally take a breath if the patient is trying to take a breath um, which i am going to try to sedate them enough to where they don't do that but if this patient um, uh, does desire to take a breath they're going to need to really work and get it um, it's not going to be an accident the the ventilator is not going to accidentally give this patient a breath due to patient movement as we're you know moving them into the aircraft and out of the aircraft and all that stuff because i do not want any um any accidental breaths any um any trickery from the machine or anything like that so my sensitivities are going to go way up so that way it's um, there's no accidents and then I run an e-hold on this patient and I see that my auto peep is 12, right? And so the first thing that you are going to do is you are going to reduce your respiratory rate. We're not dicking with the eye time. We're not messing with the tidal volume. Reduce your respiratory rate. You will get the most bang for your buck in total inhale and total exhale time by reducing the, the respiratory rate initially. And in this particular patient, we have so much room to go because our respiratory rate is 18 currently. And so if our respiratory rate is 18, um, uh, we can reduce that to 16 and then reduce it to 14 and then reduce it to 12 if we need to. And every time we change the respiratory rate, I'm going to wait one to two minutes and then I'm going to recheck another expiratory hold and recheck the auto peep. Um, I would say that if I have a super high auto peep like that of, you know, 10, 12, I'll probably disconnect the ventilator for a few seconds, let the patient fully exhale, reconnect them on my now new settings, my, um, my reduced respiratory rate settings, um, and continue doing that. Keeping in mind that I'm still giving this patient inline nebulization right now as well, um, and rechecking my e-hold every time I change the respiratory rate. Now, if I get down to a respiratory rate of 12 on this patient. Um, and they're still auto peeping. They still have an auto peep of four or five, six, whatever it is. The next sequence of events that is going to give this patient a longer amount of time to exhale, right? Because that's our entire goal to give the patient a long amount of time to exhale. Um, my next natural thing would be to reduce the eye time, give them a breath faster in order to give them a longer amount of time to exhale. But we know that this patient is not just an obstructive lung patient. This patient is a is an obstructive lung patient, but they are also a restrictive lung patient because our pips are already super high. So if I reduce my eye time down to 0.9 or 0.8 or 0.7, all it's going to do is it's going to increase my pips it is going to make the flow a lot more turbulent trying to get into this body 
and it is probably going to reduce the amount of tidal volume that I'm actually getting into this lung. So it's really not going to do me a whole lot of favors. So in this particular patient who has an obstructive lung problem, but also a high airway resistant problem, I'm probably going to skip over eye time. So we have this patient who now has a respiratory rate of 12. They're still auto peeping. Um, I'm not really wanting to adjust my inspiratory time on this dude because they have such high, weight, such high airway resistance already. And so the third and final thing that I can do to try to allow this patient um, uh, to exhale fully is to reduce the tidal volume a, a, a bit. Um, because it's obviously easier to exhale 7 mLs per kilo than it is to exhale 8 mLs per kilo. And so that is the obstructive lung strategy. People get um, very caught up in trying to change, you know, tidal volume and then eye time at the same time, and they forget to change respiratory rate. And like that is the sequence of events, though. Reduce the respiratory rate. If that doesn't work and you have already reduced the respiratory rate down to 10 or 12, eye time is the next thing. You just have to be careful with eye time because if this patient is not just a pure obstructive lung patient, but is obstructing and resistant, then eye time is just going to exacerbate the airway resistance problem. The third and final thing to do is to reduce the tidal volume a small amount. Keeping in mind that this patient now with 7 mLs per kilo of tidal volume and a respiratory rate of 12, they are going to be hella uncomfortable and going to need a lot of sedation and possible paralysis to prevent them from taking spontaneous breaths. That's also where you can assure that your ventilator is in a pressure triggered mode um, so that way there are no accidental breaths, there's no auto triggering due to aircraft movement or turbulence or anything like that, um, and reducing your pressure support on the ventilator down to something very small so that way even if they do trigger a breath, um, it's not going to um, give them any really meaningful volume. So you've essentially placed this patient on like the old style CMV mode of ventilation, which seems really horrible, but as long as you are sedating this patient enough um, and taking care of their pain, then they shouldn't really have any problems um, with discomfort. And at the end of the day, you are still treating them chemically to try to reduce these issues enough to where you can start to wean them from that ventilator. So this is just for hopefully a short period of time, um, but a, but a, high level of discomfort for a short period of time is probably better than auto peeping up to 20 centimeters of water pressure causing a pneumo and collapsing of the IVC and the hemodynamic spiraling down to nothing and then the patient dying to death. So um, uh, if they have to be a little uncomfortable for a minute, I, I guess so be it if it means that they're going to live. All right, guys, I think that's probably all I've got for today with the obstructive lung patient. So if you see a patient who looks like they've got a history of COPD and they are air trapping, they are auto peeping, we need to forget the idea of maintaining a normal CO2, accept high CO2s in exchange for allowing the patient to fully exhale. So um, in order to reduce auto peep, it's a one, two, three process, reduce the respiratory rate, then shorten the eye time, then reduce your tidal volume. Um, 
The only time you're going to skip that second option by the shortening your eye time option is if you have crazy high airway resistance, meaning that your pips are already about 10 to 15 above your plateau pressure, um, then anything that you do shortening the eye time is just going to exacerbate that problem. All right, guys. So um, thanks for... Uh, chilling with me here for the last 40 minutes or so. Um, as always, if you guys are looking to get in touch with me for any reason, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Just reach out to me at my email at kaisercprgmail.com. That's K-I-S-E-R-C-P-R-gmail.com. And I will see you guys in two weeks.